Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, the weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Ronnie Kurtz to the podcast. Ronnie serves as assistant director of marketing, managing editor of For the Church, and as an assistant professor of Christian studies all here at Midwestern Seminary. He also serves as a pastor at Emmaus Church here in Kansas City. Today, he joins me as a guest host as we discuss my recent book, Letters to My Students, Volume 2, on pastoring. Ronnie, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Hey, it's good to be back with you, Dr. Allen. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, thank you so much for helping me uh, in the studio today as we're recording a couple of episodes on my new book on pastoring. And, uh, you know, it's just fun to be in here talking with you, a younger pastor. You serve as elder at your local church here, Emmaus, in Kansas City, in a pastoral role. And I just find it always invigorating, encouraging just to talk pastoral ministry with pastors. And so today I'm getting to do that with you, and uh, you're going to lead the conversation more than I am. But knowing through our conversation, hopefully we're informing and blessing, encouraging thousands of pastors, thousands of ministers who listen to this podcast. Yes, absolutely. Listeners, if you you, uh, haven't yet, be sure to catch up on episode one. Uh, if I could point you to a specific point in episode one to to catch up on, I would point you to, and this is a, also a recommendation for Dr. Allen's new book, just just in his introduction, which I asked him about in episode one uh, of this of this book, it's just why Dr. Allen admires pastors. And I just found that as a pastor, like Dr. Allen just said, I just found it encouraging to my soul. And, and I, I pray that as you read that portion of the book and as maybe you listen to that episode, it's encouraging to your soul as well. With this episode, though, I, I want to pick up right where we left off. So in chapter one or in episode one, we talked about why you admire pastors. Again, we talked about preaching. We talked about studying. Uh, you said a great word last episode that you might not be a perfect pastor, but you should at least be an informed one. I think that's a really good word. But let's let's pick up right where we left off after the last episode. You have two chapters dedicated to the minister and his people, and I think that's very important, especially because of the chapter of the minister and his pulpit. You often hear today this false dichotomy that you either have to be a pastor of the word or a pastor of the people. And your book just doesn't allow us to make that false dichotomy. You just don't allow it to stand. So why do you think we, we hit on the importance of being a man of the word in the last episode? Why do you think it's so important for a pastor to be an actual man of the people? Well, I think first and foremost, it's, it's definitionally a part of what the New Testament tells us a pastor is, right? He's a shepherd. He's with the people of God. You look at Paul, who talks about devoting his own life to the people. Um, He's the analogy of a, as a nursing mother to babes. So there's a givenness to the people by the elder we see in the New Testament very clearly. I also think of our ministry moment in the 21st century, where we have people within the church who are beleaguered, who are weary, who have competing voices in their ears, um, who are living in a world that's challenging and increasingly hostile to Christian conviction. Um, we minister to needy people, yeah. and we need to be mindful of that. What is more, and in, in, you know, now for me, good grief, 20-plus years of, of ministry to local churches, um, I, and then now is in my ninth year as president of Midwestern Seminary, you know, I talk to pastors all the time. I know pastors. My friends are pastors. You know, I, I just, I'm around pastors. That's what I do. And unfortunately, I hear periodically of, of pastors who flame out in churches and get fired by the churches, and, or some have a falling out, resign under pressure. And, and of course, you sometimes have the, the spectacularly sinful episodes of some moral failing. Um, but oftentimes, you have a, a pastoral ministry get torpedoed 
by frankly, just poor leadership decisions, poor pastoral care decisions. And sometimes, uh, sometimes legitimately it's a theological doctrinal issue, but sometimes it's really not that. But, but to kind of make ourselves feel better about the crisis, we will race to a, a point of doctrine almost as though we're fighting the good fight over the truth of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And look, if that's the case, then we need to fight the good fight over the truth of Scripture. But we don't need to make a doctrinal fight over something that's really a, a personal leadership failing, a, a, a lack of pastoral care and sensitivity. And so, but we talk about that because I have seen so very often, you know, especially young men going to churches and um, they don't know what's a mountain, what's a molehill, and they sometimes conflate the two. And, and these, you know, you have these leadership problems that, that just happen. And I don't want that to happen at all. Moreover, not only do I not want that to happen, I want to strengthen the hand of the pastors who read this book, the ministers who are listening to this podcast, to be able to shepherd the, the people of God, the flock of God, as effectively as they can. Yeah. And look, Again, for you to get the, the best hearing from the pulpit, you need to have the respect and credibility with and from the people of God. And if you don't have that, that's going to really impair the receptivity that you should be getting as you preach. And so I want that. I want to strengthen the hand of pastors to not only preach well, but to also lead and shepherd well, because as they are equipped to do that, as they do that, then their people give them really the hearing the Word of God deserves. Yeah, that's so good. I think uh, it was our colleague, Jared Wilson, here at Midwestern Seminary, who once said uh, that as a pastor, you should sometimes find some wool on your jacket, and you should should be among the sheep such that that happens. Yeah, he didn't once say it. He says it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) By once, I mean today, this morning. It's a great (laughs) figure of speech, right? No, it it is. And and look, there's a balance there. It's easy to make pastors feel guilty for whatever lack of prayer, lack of people with people and whatnot. And you you can't just hang out with people all day long because you have sermons prepared and all the rest. But there is certainly a touch of truth to that, to That's where right. we're around the people of God enough that, yeah, there, there's a little wool on our coats. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, uh, this is kind of a side comment, but I've, I've once heard that when you, when you prepare a sermon, you shouldn't think of, you know, any particular person, so you're not singling them out. And I just think that's such a silly piece of advice. Right, right, right. I'm thinking of very many people when I'm writing sermons, actually yeah. these people in front of me who I yeah. care about and know their names and know their problems, and I'm trying to pastor them. Yeah, my rule of thumb is if 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 I think about them so much that like a point in the sermon is really targeted at them, then I need to go like talk with them, you know. <laughs> but but no, you bet as I'm thinking about sermon preparation, I'm absolutely thinking about people in my church. How will this how will this strike the 80-year-old widow? How yep. will this strike the 38-year-old couple I know that's having marital trouble? How will this strike the wayward 17-year-old boy, you know, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, look, I don't, you know, the, the, my, my my closer to home analogy with Woolen Jacket is when I pastored for years, and my wife will uh will certainly uh, corroborate this one. On Sundays, I'd find myself hugging little old ladies in the church, and uh, my lapel would always have makeup on it by the end of the day. I'd have to go home and kind of dust off and clean off my suit lapel from where, uh, where I'd have so much makeup and hairspray and all the rest, being, especially being my height. So That is amazing. <laughs> all right. Well, another, another thing you talk about in terms of being a good pastor of the people is raising up leaders. And I think this is important because often you'll have a guy who's just gifted gifted at preaching, gifted at the administrative side of things, but just can't quite replace himself. And I think that's a necessary skill, being able to find, identify leaders, and raise them up. And you actually dedicate an entire uh, section of the book to this, being able to kind of replace yourself, find new leaders, and bring them into the work of the ministry. And so I would like to talk about that. For pastors and church leaders who are listening, who they're probably interested in cultivating that exact skill, what would you say are some key items they should be looking for in a potential leader? Let me give three brief words here. Number one, give people an opportunity. 
And for me, I didn't know I was being called to ministry. I had some stirrings in my heart, love for the word, love to teach. But I began to just be offered the opportunity to teach Sunday school mm-hmm. as a college student. And that began to stir an even deeper appreciation for the word of God, give people an opportunity. Number two, have an eye out for potential leaders and invest in them. Okay. What do I mean by that? Um, a lot of guys get hung up on like, ah, oh, should our church have elders or not? You know, okay. Our plurality of elders, you know, well, okay. That's a legitimate consideration. Um, perhaps more urgent consideration though, is do our, does our church have elder qualified men? Yeah. And I, you know, one of the, and I made so many mistakes as a young pastor, I believe me, I could fill the hour naming them here. But one of the things I did that, that was helpful and wise, I began a Saturday morning Bible study and I looked for 12 men who I believe had potential to be leaders in our church. Like they weren't sketchy. They were, they were already there. They're already involved. So there, there was some degree of provenness there. Mm-hmm. But you know, asked them, would they commit to a Saturday morning Bible study? We took the summer off, but we did every fall and every spring, basically nine months a year. And they came, and 12 guys came. And over several years, I taught them, I mean, month after month after month on, on hermeneutics, for instance, month after month after month on what the church is, how it should function. And those conversations and those, those Bible studies really enabled me to invest in them and to see the Lord raise them up. Yeah. And the third thing I would say, which is very practical, and I'm not sure this is in the book, but uh, this occurred to me even in recent months as I was helping a friend think through some of these, these, these uh, issues in a church. Um, a, sub, a pastoral sabbatical can actually be very helpful to kind of flush out where leaders are in the church and where they're needed, mm. Okay. And I realize you've been to church two years, you're probably not going to get two months off. I, I totally get that. I've never had two months off in my life. But um, if you can even string together two or three Sundays, I mean, if you're out one Sunday, it can be a little helter-skelter and kind of just hope everything falls in place. But if you're out two or three Sundays, you actually have to have more of a plan. Yeah. Okay, you will teach this lesson. You will preach these sermons. You will make sure the church office is open. You will oversee the. And so, actually, if you have a two or three week where no, if people don't step up, like major balls are going to drop, that can actually help to to kind of flush out those people in your church who are capable of of more leadership, and to flush out, frankly, where in the church the needs are for people to exercise more leadership. Yeah, I think that's that's so good, and we we've even seen that at my particular church. One of the things you've done here, Doctor Allen, that. I just didn't even realize the value of this until I, and this isn't a, a plug for Midwestern Seminary, although I would happily, okay with happily plug yep. Midwestern Seminary, uh, is there's just, a, there's just a protection of the culture here that mm-hmm. has been so helpful to me. One of the things that I've told other folks who ask me what it's like working here is there's just an actual sense of joy on the campus. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I've seen as a pastor as well, just on the, on the, the pastoral team. I just maybe it's just me being overly optimistic, but I'm just tired of working with people who are constantly negative or Debbie Downers or what have you. And so uh, raising up leaders who have that, you know, they're happy to be there is is really helpful and, and something I've seen work really well here, just a joyful campus. Well, I, look, I think there's an eschatological aspect of that as well. I mean, we're not, we're not to be just, you know, trite or shallow or, or glib, but a real sense of joy and cheerfulness because we know how the story ends, us reigning with Christ. We know Christ is building his church. The spirit is pruning and growing and shaping. And, and we can rest in that. Moreover, look, we, we know convictionally, theologically, look, we believe, not arrogantly, but are confident that, that like, we're right. That's and right. So, so if I didn't think I was right about what I believe in teaching, I would change it, right? And so I believe I'm right, and we believe we're right theologically and doctrinally. And so, like, our statements of faith are not some awkward, you know, abstraction from Scripture. No, they're, they're helpful summaries of Scripture, right? Yeah. And so that does breed joy and cheerfulness. 
and then understanding as well um, the providence of God and all these things that, you know, sometimes when there's a point of irritation or a complication, God is using even those things to maybe help a person get where they need to be or, mm. or to, to bring about some other sort of correction or change or improvement. And so resting in those things. But look, it, it matters and um, culture matters, matters in the church, as we touch on in this book here. It matters in the seminary as well. Yeah, absolutely. As a uh, committed Baptist myself, I was very glad to see an entire chapter dedicated to healthy church membership. Mm. Uh, what is what is at stake in healthy church membership is hard to even quantify. Uh, I think pastors need to spend more and more time thinking about this. To be a pastor is to be uh, involved in ecclesiology in, in meaningful ways. And so I would love to just hear you talk about what is at stake if churches don't commit themselves to a robust understanding of membership. Yeah, there are several things that are at stake biblically. First of all, let's say the reputation of Christ is at stake. I mean, the glory of God is at stake. Every little church is a little repository of God's glory, yeah. for better, for worse. And so we want those churches to faithfully represent God. As a part of that is the testimony aspect. I mean, if the church is a septic tank, well, then unbelievers aren't going to be drawn to it. If the church is a place of constant bitterness and strife and conflict, unbelievers aren't going to be drawn to it. Additionally, look, the spiritual well-being of the congregants. Uh, we give an account of those of those souls we oversee, right? And so the pastor, the elder, we shouldn't just have this kind of generic group of people that we may or may not be aware of, or else every pastor can't have a personal knowledge of every church member. Of course not. But as far as the pastoral mantle and the pastoral work, the church ought to have some sense of who its people are. And look, you know, we, th these things come home to roost, especially in the year 2021. We're in social media and the cancel culture. And, you know, I, we're recording this podcast here in the days leading up to the Southern Baptist Convention, and we've been in the news a lot, not, not, not encouragingly so. And uh, some of these challenges are when you have a denomination with 14 million members, but only about a third or so of those are actively involved in the life of their church. We have millions of people who by their own lifestyle, life choices, activities, aren't really signaling the signal that they're a follower of Christ, well, you can find any type of center in that midst yep. and more than one. And so when you take that from the national level to the local church level, if you have a church, let's say, that has 1,000 people in membership role, has 350 people actively attending, you got 100 that are overseas in the military or, or shut-ins or infirmed or too elderly. So you kind of you kind of know where you, half your people are, let's say, but you have four or 500, you really don't. Mm -hmm. Well, you're setting yourself up for a whammy when next week, next month, next year, there's a scandal in the town or in the city. And oh, by the way, it's a member of your church who just committed that grave sin. And look, it's easier, you know, it's easy to kind of preach on here and to talk about it because when you get into dealing with real people and real names <laughs> and real families, it gets complicated. But what I want in the book is to press in on the importance of treating it seriously and treating membership seriously. And 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 that whole notion of covenantal membership. Yeah. What is expected? And different churches have different expectations. Some of those are clearly New Testament that need to be met. And then with beyond that, you have some churches that have different covenantal expectations towards people that may or may not be New Testament. So it's a matter of conscience whether or not you want to join that church and abide by it. But you need to be clear with people, and people need to be clear with the church about what those expectations are and how they can engage faithfully with that congregation. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's so helpful. So one of the things as I read the book, working through it, one of the things that I found uh, not surprising because it, if a book is on pastoring, as this one is, it needs to hit all these things. But one of the things that I found that was a really good strength of the book is simply just how practical it is. Uh, you, you touch on a lot of matters and matters like 
Lord's Supper and baptism and hospital visits and the regulative principle and weddings and funerals and many more. And so if, if you're just looking for a one-stop shop on some advice on pastoral ministry, I really would highly recommend this book. But I want to, I want to focus in on weddings and funerals for just one okay. question. Uh, I remember the first time I ever did a wedding and the first time I ever did a funeral. I was nervous. And I am not, not like overly arrogant or whatever, but I just don't really get that nervous. I feel decently confident in, in what I'm doing. But I remember thinking how monumental of a day a wedding is and a funeral is for family members, for all these people. It made me significantly more nervous than a Sunday morning. And so I would just love to, to ask you, you know, if you're, if you're mentoring someone who has to do their first wedding, their first funeral, what, what's some piece of advice that you're giving them? Yeah. So a couple of things I would say, first of all, uh, I know this seems counterintuitive, but funerals are actually a lot easier than weddings. Oh yeah. Um, and not to be cute about this, but you know, the main actor is deceased. That's right. Oh, uh, the wedding, they're definitely not. Uh, mothers-in-laws tend to be more amped up over weddings and funerals. <laughs> um, funerals don't require six weeks of premarital counseling. Yeah. Uh, you know, funerals, you can preach the gospel. Funerals have fewer moving parts. Funerals, you have a funeral home director, funeral director who, who helps. So funerals are a lot simpler. Obviously, they're, they're heavier, usually, because someone's passed. And if they're not a believer, it can be very heavy. And you can have a dysfunctional family, and so it can be complicated. Weddings are a lot of moving parts. Um, what, weddings, again, you're gonna do, you or someone will do premarital counseling. You or someone that you um, are comfortable with doing it, I should add. Um, what a wedding is, you can often get both weddings and funerals, a lot of kind of exotic yeah. requests. So I, I would say, I guess, as I'm handicapping this here on the fly with you, Ronnie, first of all, to all of our ministers, I would encourage you to have something of a wedding and funeral policy yep. written down on the front end. So they're not mad at you. They're not arguing with you. It's just a policy. And if they want you to do the funeral wedding, okay, that's the policy. That's what you're comfortable doing. Uh, obviously, with weddings, especially the issue of marrying believers, not unbelievers, what are they doing? Are they shacking up or you know, some other thing that, that they should not be doing before the wedding? Those things can be, should be fleshed out. Um, and then I would say with funerals, you know, the funeral director will be your friend, especially if you're a younger pastor, let him help you as far as the logistics of it all. Uh, as far as the wedding goes, whatever you do, get a wedding coordinator. <laughs> get a wedding coordinator. It's the, the family's responsibility, the bride's responsibility, but say, who is your wedding coordinator? Um, there will be times when they'll say, well, we thought you would coordinate it. Again, maybe you're more gifted than I am, but I have never coordinated a wedding, and I don't want to coordinate a wedding. That's right. Uh, I'm not into who's catching the flowers and, and <laughs> when, when, you know, uh, when to process down the aisle and all that. And so make sure there's a wedding coordinator who, so you're doing your part, they're doing theirs. And look, I would say on the weddings, look, it can be, it should be very joy-filled if you're marrying believers. It can be a special, special day, special, special weekend. Um, the last thing I would say, and I have in the book, you know, some basic outlines for mm -hmm. weddings and funerals. It's a template. It's not, you know, it's not uh, inspired, but it's a template. These are templates that you can use. And so I have kind of a game plan going into it. Um, and in the book, I talk about the length of a wedding, the length of a funeral, some of those other practicalities. Mm -hmm. But I would say, look, they're essential parts of pastoral ministry, and they're good parts. Yeah. Um, and if you can work it out with your schedule, that do a lot of weddings, do a lot of funerals. It's one way you can serve the people of God. Yeah, that, that's so good. With the, with the practical nature of kind of the last few chapters of the book, you really do cover so many things, like, like I just mentioned. Uh, so I did want to kind of land the plane on this particular episode by giving you, obviously, the last word. Uh, again, you talk about, just list a couple of these things. You talk about hospital visits. You talk about care visits. You talk about uh, the ordinances. You, you, again, you talk about the regulative principle, weddings, funerals, and so many more items that, that all kind of fit under this umbrella of on pastoring. And so I just wanted to give you the last word. Anything that you touched on in the book that you think is worth mentioning here in this episode? 
Well, I would just come back to the grandeur of the call. Look, it's a special work. And there's times when it can feel ignoble. It can feel dirty. It can feel mundane. You know, when it's a Sunday afternoon and you're cleaning up the nursery or it's a, a Monday morning and you're tired and someone calls you early to go to the hospital. I mean, there's times when it's just, it's difficult. Yeah. And I would say you overcome and you persevere through that difficulty by finding joy in the small things, but also by never forgetting the grandeur of the call. Um, God has set you apart for that work. And it's a good work. It's a grand work. It's a work with eternal consequences. And so never see it as merely a meeting, you know, merely a difficult church member, merely, you know, uh, some sort of logistical encumbrance that, that, that really is beneath you, but see it all as a part of the, the broader picture, the broader tapestry of the beauty of the local church, the glory of the local church, the grant of the call to ministry, and the fact that you're able to steward these things on behalf of God. Absolutely. Well, as a reader, I've read both volume one and volume two. So let me just say, Dr. Allen, thank you for serving us so well with these two books. Hey, you're so kind, Ronnie. Again, letters to my students, volume two on pastoring. Volume one was on preaching. Volume three out in a year or two on, uh, will be on life and doctrine. They're out with B&H Publishers and I'm thankful that it is. Ronnie, thank you for helping me today on Preaching and Preachers. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.